0: If your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew, and we have the privilege of looking at one of the most well-known teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes. For many of us, the Beatitudes are Familiar territory. Maybe you grew up hearing your church talk about the Beatitudes. Maybe you saw it stitched onto a pillow somewhere. Maybe your parents grew up reading the Beatitudes to you. And uh, they're a source of familiarity and comfort for a good reason. They're words from our Lord that paint for us a vision of what it means to be members of the kingdom of God. But one of the difficulties with familiarity is that it can cause us to brush by these words. You're reading through Matthew and you figure, I know this, I've seen this, blessed are the meek, the poor, all that stuff, I get it. And you pass through it. And we can mistake sometimes familiarity for true understanding. But the Beatitudes are the most commented on passages of Scripture in the history of the church. There are more books, sermons, commentaries written about this section than any other portion. And I think it's because of the depth of teaching that Jesus is giving to us. And this should caution us against simply brushing by these verses, assuming that we understand what Jesus is getting at. Because the depths of these words reveal themselves only to a patient reader. Someone willing to meditate on them. Someone willing to listen to them. To have eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what I hope we do this morning. We're going to do a two-part series on these Beatitudes this week and next week so that we can slowly work through the strange teaching that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's take a moment and pray for our time in the Word. Our Father, help us to hear what you have to say to us. We pray by your Spirit this Word would apply to the specifics in our lives. You know what we're dealing with. And we come to you ready to receive your comfort, your conviction, and your strengthening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Beatitudes lay out for us what characterizes the blessed life of the kingdom of God. Each one of these begins, blessed are those, blessed, blessed, blessed. Now, last week, Lance defined blessedness as happiness and wholeness. It's the good life. It's flourishing. This is what he paints for us. But which part of the Beatitudes sounds like the good life? Is it the morning? Is it the persecution? Is it the reviling? Is it the people slandering your name for the sake of Christ? None of these seem to be what we would characterize as flourishing. They're decidedly aspects of life that are not flourishing. So this invites us for deeper reflection on what Jesus is doing. He's trying to redefine what flourishing means. Redefine the good life in light of the kingdom. Those who flourish are not the people who go from pleasure to pleasure with a carefree life. But those who flourish are those who suffer in the present with joy, awaiting future hope. And how that future hope transforms our experience of sorrow in the present. Imagine you want to show your friend the most hopeful movie you've ever seen. It's got a hopeful, really great, happy ending. And you show them the movie, and you're watching with them, and halfway through the movie, somebody dies. There's a tragedy. There's a difficult, sad scene. And they look at you, and they go, you lied to me. You told me this was a movie of hope. What would you say to them? Keep watching. You have to watch it to the end. And your experience of the movie is one of joy and anticipation through those sad scenes because you have something that the person who, who has never seen the movie before doesn't have. You know the story in light of the ending. And the ending that you know, the ending of hope, reaches back into all of those sad moments and fills it with meaning and joy. So you can truly say this is a movie of hope. And in the same way, Jesus is telling us the ending so that it reaches back into the difficulties in our life so that we can flourish in the present while we wait for that future hope. The end transforms the present. But this makes no sense. This paradox makes no sense unless there's a God who loves us and acts on our behalf. God is what makes this thing work. And each of these Beatitudes describes a situation that in itself is not good, but in light of God's personal promises to His people are transfigured into a life of flourishing. And because of that future hope, we can flourish in the present, in our sufferings. That's the message. That the end that we have gives us hope in our present Suffering, And we're going to see how the Beatitudes show how future hope transforms present pain. We're just going to look at the first four Beatitudes this week, and we'll finish them off next week. So the first four are the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And how the promises of those situations transforms our present experience of that pain. Let's look through each of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Future hope, kingdom of heaven, transforms our present experience of being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those with a lowly disposition. If you think about, uh, there's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, that just says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. These two parallel accounts form a picture. There is a link between the experience of material poverty and the experience of spiritual poverty. This doesn't mean that every materially poor person inherits the kingdom of God. That's why it says, poor in spirit. But it does demonstrate that the poor have a natural disposition because of their life circumstances to be completely dependent upon the charity of others. They have to receive. They don't offer anything. Their whole life is based upon the goodwill and the graces and the mercy of other people. In the same way, the poor in spirit recognize that they themselves have nothing to commend themselves to God. They rely on His charity and grace alone. They have no moral record that they can boast of. They have no good intentions that they can use to lift themselves up. The poor in spirit is what characterizes those who recognize that apart from God, they have nothing. But there's more. To be be poor in material wealth, to have physical wealth, poverty is not only to lack supplies, but also status. Think about the people that we aspire to be like. We want to adopt the attitudes of the wealthy and the successful. We want to know how they got their charm and their charisma and their confidence and all these types of things. They're the ones who have a leg up in the world, but, but the poor, the needy, there's nothing about them that we want to be like. And yet Jesus flips the script and he says, actually, there's something that they possess and understand that I want you to adopt. This is how the kingdom of heaven operates. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which God promises to those who love them? In a sense, God gives the poor the leg up. Now, they must exercise faith, and they must love him. That's what James is saying. But he's painting a picture for us, that those who lack immaterial goods don't have the luxury of setting their hopes in this world. And that having a low status provides less hurdles To the attitude of humility that is behind faith. The neediness and lowly status that the world marks as shameful, God considers royalty. And this shame aspect is really important. I remember hearing there's a a theologian who used to be a uh, financial planner, and he talked about this phenomenon he'd recognized when he was helping. Middle-class people. These are not people in poverty. And he noticed that there was a deep shame, a shame that drove them to live paycheck to paycheck, be in massive debt and total anxiety. They did not want to seem poor. They did not want to seem lacking, not in supplies, but in status. And it drove them to live beyond their means in a way that brought all kinds of difficulty into their lives. And he noticed that shame. To to look like you need the charity of someone else, to look like you need other people to show you mercy, is something we avoid. And yet, what this theologian notices in in the blessing, in saying that the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom, Jesus is giving dignity to that position of lowliness. A dignity to being somebody who is dependent. And that ought to transform the way we view and measure status. Money and wealth, it qualifies us for things. It qualifies you for houses and for education and for how people treat you. But in, in contrast, Jesus says, actually, it's, it's not having all those means. It's, it's the spirit of lowliness that qualifies you for the kingdom. That the people of the kingdom of heaven are marked not by this Incredible ability to shape and direct everything in their life, but rather a poverty of spirit, a recognition that their physical needs, their spiritual needs, every need that they have is dependent upon the mercy of God. The kingdom comes to those who would seem least qualified by our worldly metrics. So, how do you measure status in your life? Wealth itself is not bad. In fact, in the Old Testament, wealth is a blessing. But wealth comes with particular temptations. It's very difficult not to measure our worth by our bank accounts. It's very difficult not to measure when we envision the flourishing life, a life with all of this wealth. And in a similar way, we can measure our spiritual status by religious activity, emotional passion, how you feel at a given moment in time, rather than The mercy of God, the charity of God, the bestowal of His blessing upon us, asking nothing in return. We have nothing to give. The poor in spirit cry out, like the tax collector in Luke 18 13, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. There's an album by Shane and Shane called uh, Bring Your Nothing. I love that. I think that expresses that poverty of spirit. What do you need to be welcomed into the family of God? That spirit that says, I have nothing to give. I can only receive grace from you. That's the invitation. Bring your nothing. So, blessed are those who are poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning refers to the sorrow of life in this world. The tragedy of life and our experience of it. I remember I I heard a story about a, a Bruce Springsteen concert where Bruce Springsteen, he's he's older now, and and he was telling to the crowd, he said this. This is a very fascinating statement. He said, when I was young, I was always saying hello. And now that I'm older, I'm always saying goodbye. I'm always saying goodbye. That with age, there's this recognition of the fragility of life. Mourning exposes us to our mortality, that we're not in control there is a deeply tragic aspect to life in a fallen world. Whether we mourn the death of a loved one, the death of a relationship, the death of a dream, the pain strikes us at a deep level. And we avoid mourning for that reason. And I think technology helps us distract ourselves from mourning. But there are other ways we're distracted. I think, you know, the easy, any servant, the easy enemy to take down is social media and your cell phones. And yes, that's affecting us and distracting us. But I think there's actually a a more subtle way in which we avoid mourning, avoid dealing with the difficulties of life, work, productivity, incredible time management skills, goal-setting, all these types of things. These are not bad in themselves, but they can be a subtle way in which we avoid mourning. The novelist Danielle Steele wrote 179 books by the age of 72. She published seven books a year, oftentimes worked 24 hours a day, had little sleep, and only had one week of vacation every year people praised her for her productivity. They were amazed at that industriousness, that work ethic. It's amazing. It's what we all aspire to do. But she had this interesting comment in an interview. She conceded that her productivity was her way of avoiding confronting difficult emotions. Her son had died of an overdose, and she herself had been divorced five times. And she said this. Work is where I take refuge. Work is where I take refuge. We we anyone can say you're distracting yourself with your phone and all these things. That's true. But when you come to work, that's a little that's a little deeper because that's celebrated. To be productive, to be hard working, to reach the top, and yet I wonder if this is something far more profound in how we avoid mourning the sadness that is in our lives. Now, we can also avoid avoid mourning over sin. We can use work and productivity to just, we just want to move on. We know we've sinned, but let's just move on. Everybody move on with me. Instead of grieving over your own offense toward others and toward God. There is a godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. There's a a godly sorrow of looking yourself in the mirror and realizing, I have sinned. I have transgressed. And owning that. And mourning over what you have done. It's a mourning with hope. It's a morning that is promised with the comfort of the gospel, but it is still a genuine morning. So it's not just the morning of loss, but the morning over our sin, and the morning of the unrighteousness of the world, of the evil and the wickedness that we see around us, the brokenness. God invites us to this sober-minded clarity that comes when we mourn. And mourning can be the beginning of new life as well. Listen to this powerful quote by Gervase Pinkars. He writes, "The word of the beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the holy spirit in order to break up our interior soil." It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggle it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. And all of this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. Mourning plows the fields of our soul Ruffles our feathers, breaks apart the hardness, so that God might implant the comfort of new life. We mourn our sin and the promise of God comfort us. We mourn our losses and sorrows. and God uses that mourning to deepen the hope that His eternal comfort will bring. This is what Paul means. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when he says, Do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. In other words, you have this hope, and that transforms. It doesn't erase. It doesn't lessen the grieving. In some instances, it makes you grieve more, because you are allowed to feel the full weight of it in light of that great hope. But that is the way in which the end transforms the present. You're not grieving and mourning in vain, and I I fear mourning. I mean, I just you just fear what it does to you. But one of the great comforts is that God will give you the grace when it comes. There was a, an old lady that was talking to Spurgeon, the Great Baptist preacher, and she was saying to, to him, I, "I'm afraid of of not having." The grace to die well. I'm afraid when my time comes, I'm gonna be a mess. It's not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to persevere through the end of my life. And Spurgeon said to her, he's like, of course you can't. Dying grace only comes to the dying. The morning grace only comes in that moment. You can't pile up, you can't stock up comfort so that when morning comes, you're impervious to it. It doesn't affect you. But the promise is. As it comes, the Lord will be your personal comfort, and the hope of that comfort will shine forth into your life and transform the way you grieve. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. When I say meekness, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's somebody who's very insecure, and they're always apologizing, always deferring, and they're very unsure of themselves. But that's, that's not what meekness means. Moses was the meekest man on earth. He defied an empire. There was idolatry happening in the camp, and he told his guys to go in and kill 3,000 of them to stop their sin from spreading. Moses was a force to be reckoned with, and he was the meekest man on earth. So it's not cowardice. It is power under control. It is authority harnessed with restraint and righteousness. Notice the meekness of Jesus in John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' act of self-sacrifice is an expression of power under control. Notice he says, no one can take my life from me. I have absolute authority over my life. I have power. But I'm going to lay down that power of my own accord for the sake of others. And because of the commission that I've received from the Father. The charge of the Father. I have the power to give it up. I have the power to take it up again. This is a self-sacrifice that comes from a place of great confidence in the Lord. Confidence in His Father. Great confidence in the purposes of plan and plans of God. It's amazing. Jesus is kind, he's gracious, he's tender, but he never lets anyone live rent free in his head. He is, you read through the gospels, this is a man on a mission. He does not let the passions of others, the opinions of others, detract him from the directive that he has given. That's the meekness. His restraint is not an excuse for weakness. He's not saying that, 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 you know, he's just always giving up or he has no ability. He's always, free. no, he's saying, I have this immense power, but I willingly submit it to the purposes of God. I restrain it for the sake of others. Meekness harnesses strength through restraint for the glory of God. But meekness also describes a condition, not just an attitude. Peter Lighthard, in his commentary on this passage, he he speaks about how the meek are the afflicted. They're the lowborn. They're the abused. And the Hebrew word for meekness is used 13 times in the Psalms, and it's often referring to God's own people who are meek. God's own people who are dependent upon Him to fight on their behalf. And that's the key. Meekness is not restraint of your own power. It's restraint knowing that God is strong for you, that you have God on your side. That allows you to restrain yourself. You know the mighty force that stands behind you, and that allows you to bear suffering, to bear persecution. Listen to Psalm 37, verses 8 through 11. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. How does he describe the meek? The meek refrain from anger, wrath, and anxiety. The things we all struggle the most with, right? And instead of being anxious... Instead of wanting to lash out with rage, they wait. They wait for the Lord to act on their behalf. John Calvin defines the meek as those who are not easily offended. They're not fragile. They are those who are able to bear the offenses of others. Why do we snap at people? Why do we explode with anger? It's not because we feel strong. It's because we feel weak. We feel vulnerable. We feel exposed. We feel powerless. And so it's fight or flight. But the meek man waits for the Lord in confidence, knowing he's going to act for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher, he says, meekness is when we leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future in the hands of God And especially so if we are suffering unjustly. Why is this promise? you'll inherit the land? How did Israel inherit the land that God promised? How did Abraham inherit the land? It wasn't by their military might. It wasn't by their strength. It wasn't by their ingenuity. It wasn't by their plans. It was by the grace of God. It was because what did they cry out? God is with us. God fights for us. God goes before us. God has given this land. Everything is dependent upon the grace of God, that God actually hears our prayers and acts on our behalf. And meekness makes no sense unless that is true. But the great confidence we have is God is with us, He fights for us, and that allows us to restrain ourselves, to speak a soft word, to be gentle to bear with the sins of others, to see the best in each other. We can restrain, not because we're weak, but because in the Lord we have this great reservoir of strength. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Final beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What we hunger and thirst for reveals instinctually what we believe we need to survive. Hunger and thirst shows a deep craving for what is necessary. Hunger and thirst reveal that we need food and water. And in a similar way, a hunger and thirst for righteousness reveals a deep need to see evil corrected. A great need to see justice done. Righteousness not only refers to moral uprightness, but everything being put in conformity with God's will. God's righteousness is his saving deliverance to set right what is wrong. And sometimes we we miss this. We look at the Beatitudes and we abstract them as little fortune cookies about, you know, living a blessed life and all these things. We we forget the historical context of this. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up in synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he reads it and his sermon is basically this. I fulfill this. The end. And he wraps up the scroll. What does Isaiah 61 say? It says that the Spirit-anointed Messiah... Is going to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. That the kingdom of God is not some like heavenly spa that we all escape to. It's this administration of God invading human history in the person of Christ to set things right, to bring about the kingdom. That's why Jesus is preaching the kingdom is near, history is about to change, God is about to raise his king. Things aren't going to be the same. And he's speaking it to people who have been awaiting this for thousands of years. That's what creates a hunger and a thirst. You hunger, if if you have no hope, you don't hunger and thirst. You just become numb. But to be hungry and thirsty means God, you promised. You are righteous. You are good. You know the evil in the world, and you will do something. And we will not rest until that. Happens. Hunger and thirst. And when we, we were recently, uh, I recently took a trip to Israel and uh, we were seeing the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. It was amazing seeing the actual places and, and meeting the different people. And I remember one night we had a, a, a woman come and speak to us and share some of the, the grief she's had in her own life. She was a victim of a horrible crime against her. And she was talking about ways in which people were helpful in her mourning and unhelpful. And she said one of the most helpful things she heard, one of the most comforting things people would say to her was this. May God avenge your blood. May God avenge your blood. It's a very biblical prayer. It's the prayer of Abel's blood when he's murdered by his brother. His blood cries out. It's the prayer of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6. Crying out for God to bring justice on behalf of his people. But the promise is key. They will be satisfied. What happens when a hungry and thirsty man gets desperate? He steals. He tries to take things into his own hands. His thirst for justice becomes... Evil. And so God is actually restraining us here. He's saying, no, I'm going to satisfy this for you. You don't need to satisfy it for yourself. It doesn't mean that we don't seek legal help. It doesn't mean that we, ab- that we don't advocate for ourselves and contend for justice in the world and for rights to be wrong and, and, and to fight against the wickedness of things happening around us. But it does mean we should temper our expectation of perfect justice in this life. And even when we do find some semblance of legal justice, is there any amount of money that can really satisfy the wound? Is there any prison sentence that can really cover the depth of evil in this world? And it's pointing us to something further. There will be a final justice that God brings on the day of judgment. That the kingdom of God is a terrifying reality to those who are living in wickedness. And by the way, if you're here, be careful that you yourself are not one of those things that the Lord will set right when He returns. This is the invitation. You don't have to be judged for your sins. You don't have to feel the weight of that punishment if you trust in Christ. We are not the judge, during jury and executioner. And we follow Christ who himself, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 23. It doesn't say Jesus was just like, don't worry about it. You didn't really bother me. It's fine. It's not really sin. This isn't really evil. You're not really wicked. It's just, we just, I'm just all nice to everybody. No, he says, I I will bear the injustice you commit against me because I know, I know the judge. I know what he's going to do. And in fact, Jesus feels sorrow over those who reject him because he knows the wrath coming for them. And Christ entrusts himself to the Father knowing that this is the future and we are to follow in that path. We can bear the offenses because we know, you you don't know what's coming for you. I'm trying to tell you. We can have compassion on those who are lost in, in, in their darkness and their evil because... They don't realize that God takes note. And for those who suffer injustices in the present, you don't have to live a life of bitterness. You can entrust yourself to the Lord knowing He gets it. He knows. He knows what you're dealing with. He takes account of it, and He will bring justice for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And each of these beatitudes reflects an aspect of Jesus' life. He was poor in spirit. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He emptied himself, took the form of a slave. He became poor in spirit. He mourned over Israel's sin and the tragedy of Lazarus' death. He was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. He walked with meekness. Tender with bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks, Isaiah 42.2. He was gentle with these disciples that were just fools for most of his ministry. Kind and gracious. He suffered under evil and affliction and reviling without opening his mouth, Isaiah 53.7. And he did so for us. For our good, to fulfill the will of the Father out of love. The Beatitudes don't just describe the kingdom, they describe the King. What is Jesus saying when he says, Follow me? These Beatitudes are a description of what your life will be like when you follow him. You will follow the path in which he walked. And he never calls us something that he himself has not. Walks through, but the call to follow him is a promise of his presence as well. We're not just called to walk like Jesus, we're called to walk with Jesus through that suffering, through the mourning, because he will be with us. You are not blessed because you are mourning. You are blessed because your mourning is with God who loves you and will comfort you. You're not blessed because you're poor in spirit. You're blessed because God has entrusted the poor in spirit with his kingdom. You are not blessed because you are meek. You're you're blessed because God acts on behalf of those who trust him. You're not blessed because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're blessed because that craving will be satisfied. If you are in one of these four circumstances, this is God's word to you. It's not the end of your life. It is painful, but it's not the end. And not only is it not the end, but there can actually be true joy and flourishing in the midst of real difficult pain. Future hope transforms our present life because that is a life with God. It may not be apparent at every moment, But it's true nonetheless. And as we implant these words into our heart day after day, the wellsprings of hope can arise. And that faith won't put us to shame. Maybe you feel completely empty. And this is just too good to believe. And you feel like you have nothing to give. Here's the invitation bring your nothing. Bring your nothing. The kingdom is for you.